Hello, welcome to... <clears throat> Hello. Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. I threw that at you because you I just know, I deliberately did it wrong, and yeah. it was fun for me, but then I thought, oh God, people will really think I'm that incompetent. Yeah, and we have got like a proper author this time, not I just know, like, you know, yeah, so um, so we're joined by Jeff Dyer, who has written many books, both fiction, non-fiction, and some which balance between the two, books about jazz, books about John Berger, books about Tarkovsky's Stalker, books about photography, many things, and so I want to start off, first of all, Jeff, by not talking about your latest book, but by talking about Zona, which is a remarkable piece of work because basically it's a book which just describes a film. But basically what is going on in the film? It is Tarkovsky's Stalker. And what, what was it about that film that you thought this is a film that needs to be described? Huh. Yeah, I don't know whether I describe it or I just sort of summarise it, really. Um, I, it was during a period when I was meant to be writing, I was contracted to write a different book about tennis, which I wasn't able to to do. And just as a way of bunking off, because I know that there's nothing worse than sitting at home failing to write, uh, there'd been a screening of Stalker at the BFI, a film I love. And then I just uh, wrote this little article about it. And I realised that I could start sum just summarising exactly what I was seeing on screen in a tone that seemed, on the one hand, completely inappropriate, because it was quite jokey, and, of course, Tarkovsky is a much revered artist who is spoken of in tones appropriate to this kind of Saint Tolstoyevsky kind of figure. And I found that, actually, by summarising it, weirdly, I could also engage with the huge metaphysical stroke philosophical issues that it gives rise to, because... As Stalker and his two clients, writer and professor, make their way through the zone, so gradually what starts off as a quite literal physical journey of walking uh, becomes an increasingly digressive journey where they make less and less physical progress and get increasingly bogged down by the great questions of whether they really want to go to this place, the room at the heart of the zone that they've signed up for. Because it is the the nearest equivalent I can think of to that book is the Stag Movie Review, which I found in a secondhand shop and is an incredibly detailed ten page, sometimes twelve page descriptions. You've seen that book, haven't you, Josie? I've seen it. I've heard you reading it. It out is loud. remarkable. What it is is it is it takes so all of these are stag movies, twenty minute films, eighty minute films in which a man and a woman, or, or five men and three women, or something, one of them a boxer dog, uh, all get involved <laughs> with the sexual shenanigans. And this book goes into every bit of description of it. The boy is seated on the left-hand side of the blue sofa in a white shirt and jeans. The girl, who is slightly younger, and he goes through this whole thing, and then eventually it will get into describing the genitals. That was it. The, um, the, <laughs> Point the, at me! No, it's because I've just remembered, because I will have read that out when we do one of our shows, where it goes... Uh, um, the labia are well-defined, not long and flappy, like many girls of her stature. But Or, or those wonderful Just, monthly film bulletin where you get the full description of some weird horror movie. So it's good for you to know that you're part of a revered literary tradition. Uh, I, I feel absolutely honoured to, uh, to be spoken of in the same breath. I don't. Actually, I should put the books next to each other on my shelf, but it's a yeah. brilliant... What I find... Because I, I love that film, but the problem I found with that, that film, and I don't know whether we should talk about a change in culture, which is um, not that long ago on television, certainly in the UK, things like Stalker might get shown on a Sunday night on BBC Two. 
Channel 4. Oh, Channel yeah. 4. Yeah, Channel 4. There was a point where Channel 4 went from showing foreign language films to City Slickers 2. Yeah, and I remember yeah. thinking, this is where humanity may have jumped the cultural shark. <laughs> but that, when I first saw Stalker, I think I almost made a mistake because it was only a few years ago, about 10 years ago. And I went, I don't know what I'm, I can watch anymore because I tried then to watch things that were just, oh, here's a bit of fun. And I thought, it's not as much fun as being immersed in this thing. Yeah, uh, just to go back to that about uh, Channel Four showing these highbrow films, you know, like when they showed, didn't they, didn't they uh, broadcast Shoah um, for eight hours without advertisement? So that was a great tribute. Yeah, but I remember very clearly when they uh, first broadcast Stalker, which, as you know, it's a film that begins in black and white. So obviously, somebody at Channel Four had had a quick look at this film decided it was in black and white, so they broadcast the whole film in black and white, which means, since there's that wonderful bit when they get to the zone and suddenly we're in colour, effectively, they never made it to the zone. <laughs> they remained stuck in this rather grim black and white world. That's like with The Wizard of Oz. I feel like people must have done that with The Wizard of uh, Oz. Yeah, exa- and that is, uh, yeah, that's a, you know, that I, I think that film is a, a big influence on... Well, I mean, Tarkovsky... I mean, there's so many similarities between Wizard of Oz and, and Stalker. But I'm kind of really increasingly nervous to say about saying whether or, or not, um, uh, you know, it was actually an influence on Tarkovsky for the following reason, because I was introducing a screening of Tarkovsky's film Mirror in Texas, and I said with absolute confidence, it was so obvious that Terence Malick had uh, a mirror not just at the front at the back of his mind but at the front of his mind when he made tree of life so so have you seen seen tree of life i've i've seen mirror and i've seen half of tree of life i've seen neither but i do know what we're talking about so let's <laughs> keep going and it's i mean it's the similarity is incredible it's as though he's taken mirror and just trans tra, you know transferred it across to texas anyway some time passed, and I actually ended up having dinner with Ter- Terence Malick in, in Austin, Texas. And I told him about this, and he's, he's such a lovely, sweet guy. He said, oh, Jeff, that, that's so interesting. It really makes me want to see Mirror. <laughs> <laughs> so these obvious influences uh, are, are not necessarily uh, influences at all. They're just coincidences. Yes, but it's never a coincidence, really, because you're in the culture that you're in and you get little snippets of it, and that's what's so wonderful about it. Like, things get to you via other means. So it's probably he had a mate who he was chatting to, and the mate was a like a charlatan and just was like, tell you what, um, you should do this, this, and this. Wow, you're so insightful. Yes, I am. Don't let him know that I've just been watching Mirror all day. Yeah, That's all it is. Um, this is the first time that I think our, our podcast has properly got Jungian. <laughs> it's been a long time. We've been waiting for it to get Jungian at last. I sort of think about that. I think about the, is it the Ideas Web? Was he the Ideas Web? Well, it's basically there's a kind of collective consciousness that means that you don't necessarily have to meet or share, that, that yeah, somehow I, within, uh, I, I was going to say within the ether, Brian, and Cox will be furious. I talk about the ether. He said that that's really been dismissed by <laughs> physics now. But so, so therefore, there's a kind of a, a communal shared ideas yeah, which are, are not cult- necessarily are not passed on socially, but are. Oh no, I mean more passed on through little things. I don't mean just like oh, you're just walking around and you get it. I mean, yeah. I genuinely. No, but let's be Jungian anyway. <laughs> but I am um, because I. What's happening to Good me at the moment, steam. which is like ruining my brain, is that in February, me and my friend said that we were going to make like a gorilla a gorilla feature film for no money um where 
we wanted to talk about how complacent people in the United Kingdom are about the refugee crisis and about how we all believe it can't happen here and we all think we're so safe. And so we decided we were going to film a blocking night that's like a mumblecore film, people just chatting about their relationships. Then fictionally, in the summer, there's a right-wing rout of the country that plunges it into complete chaos and then the far right take hold. And then in October, we're filming the second half, which is about what happens after that when people are trying to live their lives. And... Um, the problem has been that that has seemingly come true during the thing. Uh, uh, yeah. And so I've really, really been thinking about the fact that on some level, all of the people trying to write stuff have known that these things are all around us or something. Do you know what I mean? Like You, you should have had your dystopian future at arm's length. You yeah. brought it too close to you. Basically, what I'm saying is don't write anything because it will come true. And um, No, but I... Is that, that is sort of relevant. It's isn't it? it's kind of sorry. yeah. No, it, well, it, it, I suppose that those those ideas are out. I, I, I'll look, I, we're not talking to you. Sorry, we'll go off on one. Can I just come, come just back on that? Yeah. What Josie said when she when, when she said gorilla. Of course, I couldn't tell whether it was with a an O or a or a <laughs> you know or a U E, and uh, it made me think of that. Speaking of the sort of shared consciousness, it made me think of that great shot near the beginning of Baraka. Do you remember? There's a shot of a snow monkey. In, in, a, in a pool, he's sitting there, you know, and as always, when you see any kind of primate, you can't help but think, oh, my God, they are so like us. And to really bring that home, the next shot is a kind of a view of the cosmos. And you realise, and in the grammar of filmmaking, you realise, oh, my God, that's a kind of, that's a, a kind of point of view shot. This is what the, the snow monkey has got in, it, in his head. Uh, capable of these uh, of these Cox like or, or or Stephen Hawking like big ideas of yeah you know, the cosmic consciousness is shared by us and the primates. But it might just have been a snow monkey that had seen Matter of Life and Death. <laughs> so it might have just been there going. It's still my favourite opening to any film. This is the universe big, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a great film. The um. We'll we'll move on from though I, I would just like to talk about Tarkovsky because it's one of yeah, those things no, where let's talk I, about Tos, Tarkovsky some more. Uh, do you think with you you've been writing for near well in terms of your first book was almost thirty years ago wasn't it Ways of Telling? It was exactly thirty years ago eighty six yeah. So do you think there is a change in what is kind of culturally acceptable that people do the, the challenges because there is so much I, I'm I'm worried it might just be because I'm a middle aged person now. But the, I think of some of the things that were accessible to me, whether it's things like the films of Derek Jarman being on, on, on Channel 4, a lot of stuff mm -hmm. that was art house, but also would, you'd still see these people on a chat show. Yeah, yeah. And I, I sometimes get worried, if you show someone something by Tarkovsky, um, afterwards, if you make them, just, just stay sitting, I promise you. I think you mentioned it in Zona, it's certainly in one book on Tarkovsky, we're talking about that idea where it makes something boring. Oh, yeah. And if you keep it boring for long enough, it becomes fascinating again. So yeah. as long as you've got the tenacity to go, I'm not really sure what's going on, but I'm going to keep looking. Mm -hmm. Suddenly you go, the three hours is up. Uh, yeah. How did that happen? Mm -hmm. Now, do you feel as, as, as a writer and also commentating uh, on, on, on culture that where it's it's harder to place people in a situation go just try this honestly it's going to be interesting well i don't need to reply as a writer or cultural commentator it's much better if i just reply as a fellow middle-aged bloke so i mean uh on the one hand you know uh, uh you know i was born in 1958 so i sort of came of cultural age with the idea that often if something seemed a bit boring at first that was probably a sign of some inherent value. And that held true not just of 
slow films like Antonioni, but also even going further back, it was the difference between the kind of prog rock conceptual album and the Top of the Pops hit single, you know. So, um, yeah, I really, you know, boredom was a kind of side effect of, of inherent quality. And so when I first saw Stalker, the fact that it was a bit boring made me think, ah, yeah, this is a work of, of, high, of high seriousness. And, you know, I'm conscious, as we all are, of how, you know, everything has sped up and our, con uh, our spans of concentration have shrunk. So I think it's quite interesting now when there are screenings of these Tarkovsky films. I think, God, what is it going to be like for a, a kid of 22, 23? In other words, who is the age now that I was when I first saw Stalker? Is it going to be absolutely intolerably boring because it seems 20 times slower now than it did back then? Well, in fact, it turns out, uh, especially for even younger people of kids of sort of 15, 16, they actually find stalker really quite ex it's its slowness is quite exciting or maybe exciting isn't the right word it's thoroughly mesmerizing so in fact it's kind of its specialness is is if anything enhanced in the in in the current uh sped up culture um and i i'm always struck by the way that now when i see stalker again i mean the first thing to say is the beginning of it it's quite exciting it's there's quite it's a sort of chase thing and now i'm i'm kind of what 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 seeing stalker does uh, again for me is to make things like the born ultimatum seem even more boring than they really are and i've got nothing i've got absolutely nothing against film being entertaining but the problem is what's offered to me as entertaining is absolutely the opposite of entertaining. It just bores me rigid. Mm. There is something, isn't it, about going, stop blowing things up. Yeah, we just, yeah. there was, what was it? I think the first one I remember was Van Helsing, which would have been about <laughs> 10 years ago. I love the original Universal Horrors. There's lots of mistakes. Like, I, I think it was uh, Sam West plays uh, Frankenstein and he's meant to go, he's alive! <laughs> and, and it was him who said to the director, went, I don't think it's he's alive. I think it's it's alive, which is one of the most famous things in it. It's alive. Um, and I watched that film and there was just a bit of turn it down. Stop it. Because yes. it was a bang, bang. You have to keep looking. Eventually you go, no, I want to turn away because all I'm getting there is There is nothing more boring than an explosion in a film. <laughs> I like him. I, yeah, I, I, I agree with you about things like that seeming to be this respite from a different time and, and from a different uh, yeah, different way of living almost culturally now. And um, so because I'm always a little bit more like, well, that and that can both coexist well, that, and we can have this and that. That would but, certainly be my sort of mm. principled uh, attitude. But unfortunately, it's like that's not a choice we're being offered. No, because if you I mean, I find it so essential when I go to the a, a movie theatre now, I have to time my arrival to miss the trailers because at the end of those trailers where the volume is pumped up so large, it's all CGI and it's all nonsense. They've completely exhausted, you know, my wad has been shot um, in a kind of negative way before the, the feature uh, presentation. But also what I'm conscious of is that uh, we are so outside any kind of demographic that, they, that films are catering for now. Uh, so, I mean, increasingly in independent cinema, it tends to be like, OK, it's serious, the dialogue's good uh, and the drama is adult. But what it's not, what it tends not to do is really offer a big, huge cinematic experience the way that uh, Stalker does. You know, Stalker is a visionary film, 
my God, you know, what is the zone? It's the wonder of cinematic space. Whereas now, serious film tends to be sort of on a smaller, smaller scale. It tends to be a sort of a, a drama with not much going on cinematically. But that's money a lot of the time, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's is that also about what's happened to some literature? Where I think it was Tom Wolfe a few years ago wrote an essay where he uh, complained. He said, what's happened to the great American novel? So many American novels are about novelists trying oh. to write a novel and then the oh, problem they have with their, their, their mother. Their, their oh. mother's got dementia. The, he's trying to write a novel. And he said, <coughs> what's happened to the kind of an epic quality to it? Yeah, I mean, that, and that is not uh, uh, dependent on budget because one of the great things about writing, one of its, you know, fantastic liberations, is that actually it costs no more to imagine, imaginatively stage the Battle of Borodino than it does uh, a sort of uh, dinner for two in a restaurant. Yeah. Um, I'm not with you with... I mean, I find increasingly that if you want to deter me from reading a novel it's to put on the back that it's on a huge scale with a vast cast of characters increasingly I like I mean I like the Gene Reese model of a novel where it's just you know 200 pages first person and uh you know just it's just the you know it's just the it's small scale and intense. I think it's not so much the epic as in as in lots of wagons or anything like that, but as in <laughs> just removing it from being... It's a bit like if you go back in British television, you have Steptoe and Son, yeah. and now you have a lot of uh, sitcoms which are about people who are basically the people who wrote the sitcom. Do you know what... Yeah. Do you see what... Gotcha, that that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, I did... I, yeah, I... As our young person representative, Josie, what do you think? I know what you mean, and I can't bear things that are basically a writer writing about writing because I'm like, go to the zoo, do fucking anything other than sitting around going that you don't want to write. But I also think, you know, even on this programme, on this programme, that's a bit lofty, isn't it? Even with these chats, (laughs) you know, when we were talking about uh, the International Booker Prize and all these other things, I think it's just a case of, and sorry, guys, but like some young men who are in quite privileged places might well be writing in that way. But there's a whole big world out there and there's all kinds of exciting things happening. Um, also, what I think is... Oh, oh, what I want to say is that Jean Reese's her books are the books that have had the most profound emotional effect on me of anything I've ever read. Those are books that have actually taken me from an even keel and dragged me into chaos <laughs> from reading them because they're so yeah. intense and yeah, they're so yeah. successful in what they do and you get into it. I mean, I've never had it before where I've got into something so much that it's, yeah, it's actually unsettled me, like knocked me over. And Yeah, yeah, no, uh, completely. I mean, but I, you know, I sort of, I, I can't let this go uncontested. When uh, when you were when you were saying you'd had a, enough of, uh, you know, these... Uh, guys writing books about writers struggling to write a book. I, you know, I have to. I I can't let that go uncontested because I've written one of the uh, acknowledged masterpieces <laughs> of of the genre. You know, out of sheer rage, my book about Lawrence, and it's 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 the I and I I say this with some confidence. I doubt that any book could be more self indulgent in that regard than that one. But that is that's annoying. You well, know, that's also, the one I haven't read. I've got it. The, the um, no, oh, and it's, also um, I feel genuinely like. I I don't like writing off any sort of cultural trope. I don't really like being like, well, sod them, sod that or anything oh, yeah, like that yeah. because there's always, you know, always stuff like that. But at the same time, oh, my gosh. You know, it's like if you see a film and the film is like an aspiring screenwriter. No, I'm out. <laughs> uh-huh. Do you know, it's funny, though, because I think, you know, I love Bruce Springsteen, but one of my 
favourite lines in Bruce Springsteen. I can't remember what the rhyme is, but, you know, that line where he says, I'm sick of sitting around here trying to write this book. And I feel that's such a sort of great mythic archetype of the the young guy, in this case, full of ambition, you know, in his kind of Brooklyn garret or whatever, yeah. trying, to, trying to write the, the book. I feel that's a, that's a sort of wonderful, encouraging uh, sort of role model, really. And then also we can, you know, we can change the gender. And I think there's something so wonderful about okay we've got these big you know modernist heavyweights Joyce Lawrence Virginia Woolf and I like the idea of this kind of somewhat demented drunken uh, woman writing in a way that doesn't see you know that is touched with obviously touched with genius but not quite with that obvious vaulting ambition of those big modernist novels that sort of so I like the sort of smaller scale eccentric undertaking of Jean Rhys who I think feels to me more contemporary than oh, any of those uh, uh, the, uh, than any of those you know the big the big three like that yeah and also I suppose like what you were talking about about sitcoms being basically reflections of the writers I do love it when people are brave enough to be vulnerable and put them right into the fiction I love I it think, I love I it when there's it's some great close, examples of that when... I mean I would you know I'd love things like Kirby Enthusiasm and uh, yeah. I think there are great examples but sometimes I wonder whether we get so locked into this kind of narcissistic, you know, the way that social media, means everything becomes about you and your thoughts. But <laughs> yeah. that said, I mean, as you were saying, some of your books, I wondered whether, uh, apart from Out of Sheer Rage, how many of the books you've written actually were what you initially saw, or you got to a point writing going, because there's a couple which kind of start off and you, and you go, who's going to be doing this? And then yeah. this kind of led to this. And I was having, like when you were mentioning about the, the tennis book as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how intentional is that and how many times have you really sat down and you just go, this is the journey that I've made to actually now write this book about something quite different? Yeah, well, I mean, just to pick up on something I think Josie was saying a few moments ago and she talking about this being brave enough to, you know, uh, put yourself in the fiction like that. But I think there's a still braver step or a more interesting step, which is not to put yourself in the fiction, but actually to say, you know what, I'm, you know what, I'm not going to bother with those conventions of fiction. Here is this thing. I don't know what it is. In, in this case, it's this sort of crazy book out of sheer rage. I don't know what kind of what kind of book it, it is. But I think it. One of the good things about it is that it's not uh, setting it. It's not a recognisable novel uh, like that. In terms of, you know, whether the book, the extent to which the books by me end up being what they were meant to be at the outset. So that book, Out of Sheer Rage, begins with me saying, "Oh, I'm really trying to write a, a, a serious, sober academic study of D. H. Lawrence," and then, of course, it goes wrong. But the truth is that was no more than a MacGuffin or a conceit because right from the start I knew I was going to write a lunatic book. Uh, but I felt that its lunaticness would be enhanced if I had this idea in place of a template from which I had accidentally strayed. And, I mean, you know, the jazz book was always going to be a book about jazz, but the th- key thing is that it's not like there's some predetermined... Uh, um, template or, or or form or convention that uh, that it's gonna it's gonna neatly fit into. It arrives at a at a form that's appropriate to the subject matter. That's um, but beautiful, which is uh, seems to be very popular with jazz musicians. From what I've read, <laughs> yeah. well. I think in fact on the back of the copy I've got, Keith Jarrett says this is the best book on jazz, not about jazz. But on jazz, I think that's... Uh, yeah, he the, makes um, that uh, and, distinction, yeah. And it is, I would highly recommend it, if you haven't read it, because you, you, 
it's partly fictionalised, but taking the uh, the life story of moments within the life of great jazz musicians. Yeah. And I see. I this is what I want to know from you, right? I'm working really hard on jazz. I am determined, right? And it's taken me <laughs> bloody years. Yeah. I go and watch jazz. I've got loads of jazz. I like listening to, you know, Ornette Coleman. I'm, I'm trying. But there's still something it? that's... It's, I want to like jazz. Are you doing it because you're trying to steal the identity of a beautiful young rich man? Oh, yeah. I'd forgotten about that. It's so far away that that whole plot started of me trying to steal that identity of the beautiful rich man that I've only just remembered. Oh, God. So the... Um, but I find that But Beautiful... And the moment that I was reading that, especially the Charlie, the the the, the decline of Charlie Mingus, yeah. uh, that chapter there, which is uh, the going into that mind, going into that diet, going into that physical decline. Once I match that up with the jazz, I go now I can listen to jazz. So the background story seems to me, for for me anyway, more important with jazz wow. than with a lot of other music, with, with classical, with rock, oh, yeah. with prog. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I guess the thing is that. The, compared with, say, a lot of writers, the lives of these jazz musicians were incredibly interesting for all sorts of reasons. For, you know, partly because many of many of them are African Americans. It's a whole racial thing. Then you've got their their sort of weird. So that's one level of their strange status. You know, that they're second or third class citizens. Then, on the other hand, though, they're revered by a part of the population as being sort of. Wow, kind of godlike, mythic figures. And, uh, and just to sort of complete this thing of their status, uh, however uh, worshipped they are, people have access to them in a way that they wouldn't to a superstar like Mick Jagger, say. So you get this weird thing, where, especially when they're in Europe, that these godlike figures are walking among quite ordinary people. So that I've just seen this documentary about Ben Webster's time in, when he was living in Copenhagen. You know, Ben Webster, a giant of the, you know, of, of American jazz. And he was, he liked drinking, as did the kind of uh, the superintendent or the caretaker of his block of flats. There's this wonderful footage of him and this Mr. Olson sitting in Ben Webster's apartment, which is stacked full of beer. They don't have a language in common, but they both like drinking beer. So there's this weird combination of this godlike figure with Mr. Olson. And that happens repeatedly in, uh, in jazz. So you've got this incredible fund of anecdotes from very ordinary people about the day that they happen to spend with a god. So that is... Do you think there is, in terms of, and, and perhaps because so many African-American were playing clubs where you wouldn't, you know, actually the difficulty of finding a club where you can even allow your friends into the audience. Uh, yeah. That Because with comics, there's always this thing about the tragic comic, right? And actually, I think we're just, some of us are a little bit damaged. And yeah. actually, as it goes, I don't, I think it's a, it's not entirely... It's not as grandiose, that narrative, as people imagine. Sometimes you're a little bit... <laughs> well, I also think now we're in this really, really lucky, privileged place in British society where we can earn a living where mm. our musician counterparts can't. So actually, it's like... It doesn't work anymore because things have moved on and society's changed. Well, I just wonder about, in terms of that, the, the, the generation or the two generations of, of jazz musicians you're talking about in But Beautiful, there's... Just there is real horror there. There's a horror of physical decline sometimes, that, which was brought on by their own actions. Sometimes, which is whether you want to say genetic, whatever it might be, and there is there's an incredible sense of melancholy. Oh yeah, throughout. I mean there, there's I mean there's so much there's so many different sort of levels to it. On the one hand, the uh, the music is uh, 
seen as being, you know, some of the most advanced music being made anywhere on earth. On the other hand, you know, they're just, you know, working, jobbing musicians, glad to, to get a gig somewhere. So there's an incredible amount of travel. There's a lot of trouble going on of, of, of all kinds, from sort of car crashes to sort of racial incidents. There's drug addiction. There's all, all of this, uh, all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, I mean, what that means is that, uh, and they're also, the other key thing is that at a certain sort of, you know, in the 1960s, let's say, or late 50s, nearly all of the jazz tradition is alive. I mean, you know, that is to say, you can go back to, to you know, someone like Louis Armstrong, and at the same time, you've got the, you know, younger, younger avant-garde type musicians. So they're all, they're, they're all there uh, together. So it's not a, it's not jazz is not what it is now, where it's something that you study at a, an academy at a university. Kids can play incredibly complicated way, and you know it's 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 all fantastic. But there was a real sense of it being sort of happening in the moment of it being a, a living thing, uh, and so you'd have all these people saying, you know, oh, I learned at the University of you know um, uh, Miles Davis or or whoever it was, or the University of Duke Ellington. Uh, that is uh, an important thing that it was uh, just a, a kind of uh, and also it was evolving so incredibly quickly. If you think of that period from, you know, the late 50s into the mid 60s. Wow. Almost every week some amazing new album is coming out. So, yeah, there was an awful lot going on at every level, social, political and musical. See, that is the, it's like, once I was starting to try work hard on jazz, like just going, well, how many albums has Ornette Coleman done? <laughs> oh, I thought that was his whole catalogue. That was 1968. I see. <laughs> there is, you know, and with, with, what's your position on free jazz? That, that pops up a little well, bit. But... Yeah, yeah, sure. So, I mean, that period of, I can't remember whether it's 58 or 59 when Ornette Coleman re releases uh, the, the, the Shape of Jazz to Come. And, you know, that's great. And then there's the, you know, there's some Coltrane albums and uh, I, I, you know, I, I like some of them. But then, uh, you know, free jazz, a certain kind of free jazz becomes a kind of dead end uh, because there's this, and you can see it in some of the players. Okay, so Coltrane arrives at this point of a, of a sort of, you know, a kind of, you know, this, uh, this kind of incredible screaming intensity. But what happens when you begin with a scream? What do you do then? Oh, scream some more, scream even louder. So I think you can really, I mean, for me, that there's a sort of symbolic thing when Albert Eiler's body is found floating in the East River. You can see that maybe that's a, a symbolic end to, the, to, to some sort of excitement of, of free jazz. And I remember in New York, actually, it was just last year, going to hear, God, who was it? Andrew Cyril, Reggie Workman and somebody else, you know, some, some real great guys of the sort of free jazz generation. And they're still doing it. Uh, they're in their 70s now. Um, and, you know, it's a reminder that uh, whereas once there was this idea of there was trad jazz, then there was bebop, post-bop, modal, and then free jazz. And you realise, oh my God, actually, to an extent, even free jazz now has become part of the trad, the jazz tradition. Even free has become trad. <laughs> so I like, have you ever heard Derek Bailey's Carpal Tunnel? No, I haven't. Oh, that's what Stuart Lee maybe listened to. He said, he said I wouldn't like it, and I deliberately did to annoy him. That's like the, when, um, when we were on tour and he was playing John Zorn, and he was like, just tell me when you want me to turn this off. And I was like, there's no way I'm okay. telling him to turn this off. Yeah, because Stuart, he's a great free jazz mm. fan, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he is. But, and so, yeah, where, some, so, I mean, but 
you know, to take another band that I know he thinks a great deal of, you know, the greatest band in the world now, uh, it's quite interesting. They're not American, not British, they're Australian. It's the Necks, N-E-C-K-S. And they're doing something which is, uh, it's completely, it's free improvisation, but it doesn't have any of those traditional characteristics that we associate with free jazz. It's so independent that even to categorise it as jazz, except because it's piano, bass and drums, is to not do justice to all the things uh, uh, at work in it, which is why I'm always reluctant to call them uh, a, a jazz trio. That's thrilling. It's yeah, thrilling it's to incredibly think about things, thrilling. Wow. Yeah, like follow them from each other and change and, and how that will always keep happening. It's wonderful. Yeah, except, I mean, it, it, it will keep happening, but at certain times it's not happening as much. So that, for example, you know, after I'd finished the jazz book, um, I'm not saying that because I finished it, jazz died, but the, the <laughs> jazz had been going through a period of great excitement. And then around about 1991, it became less exciting. And I personally, it's like my taste immatured with age. I went from being really into jazz to being interested in uh, house and techno music. <laughs> Uh, and I'm really glad I did, because at that point, uh, whereas not much was happening in jazz, in the 1990s, it seemed, if you were interested in music, you were crazy not to be interested in electronic music. Yeah. Because just as so much was happening in jazz from the late 50s onwards, so that period of electronic music, my God, every couple of months some new uh, sub-genre was, was happening. And I always struck, by the way, that how quickly drum and bass went through every permutation of which it was capable without stopping being drum and bass yeah. whereupon it sort of changed into you know whatever 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 came next but that's where it doesn't pay to categorize or box yourself mm -hmm. in that's where it pays to go what's exciting at the moment exactly yeah, and, and quite yeah. often when i think about like i i like how i think about the specials a lot <laughs> i think about how much i love those people coming together and what they stood for and then when i think about I think about the Prodigy Experience, that album from 1990, all the time. And I think about that as like another iteration of the same kind of thing and the same kind of circumstances coming together and stuff like that. And I, that's why I always, yeah, I always think, yeah. Well, I think I'm of a diversify. generation where you were kind of meant to be told, this is music for you. If you like this music, you're not allowed to like this <laughs> oh, music. Oh, absolutely. And then yeah, there is yeah. a sudden point where either you decide merely that's to continue it. to like things you enjoyed when you were 15 and never move on, or yeah. you go, fuck it, I'm allowed to like all of these yeah. different things. And I'm like, uh, yeah, you go into a record shop and, and they have those annoying speakers that make something sound so brilliant. <laughs> you don't realise that when you get home, it's not as good. But nevertheless, you go, what's this noise? What is this yeah, noise? And, yeah. and you buy that noise and you don't have to wear... The anorak, which has tipex on the back, your particular genre. Oh, exactly. What was it? The say, Vic Reeves thing. He used to have a he used to have a leather jacket, and in studs on the back, it just said various artists. <laughs> which I had a great. Idea. What I would say as well is, for all of you bemoaning the present and how ghastly it is, <laughs> what is so exciting about young people? And I know this is this isn't exactly a hot take, but you know, I mean people in their 20s and 30s and they don't 20s and 30s that sounds ridiculous very young people yeah. don't differentiate and they can have everything all at once and that is fascinating and but exciting that, and you see that's why we brought up that subject about boredom about art is because by doing this we want people to try those things <laughs> so it's not uh, a negative yeah. thing it's actually a positive no, right, thing right. to go don't don't avoid these things now we should uh, well actually that's in boredom in, in, in your new book when you, you talk about when you go into Tahiti and the, the, the painting you hope to see is off and they don't even 
really know why it's, it's being repaired or it's being loaned to someone. Same thing happened to me at Huddersfield Art Gallery the other day. The bloody Francis Bacon had been lent out and the Stanley Spencer and that had been lent out to the Hepworth in Wakefield that wasn't even fucking open on a Monday. So thank you. Anyway, the... Um, that you talk about the importance of disappointment. Mm. You 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 say you were disappointed, and as long I, I'm paraphrasing, cause I can't, but it's but as long as you're disappointed, as long as you have moments of disappointment, then you're alive. To not be disappointed, I might as well be dead. To if you're not capable of disappointment, then you must just be resigned. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's. Uh, I always wonder about this. With uh, I don't think Americans. I don't think disappointment has quite the same place in American life that it does here because it seems to me by the time you're let's be generous by the, no let's let's be very specific I so remember when I was I think 12 years old Hawkwind my favorite band were playing a free gig in Cheltenham where I grew up and uh it poured with rain at this open air gig Hawkwind didn't ever didn't even show up and that for me I think that was such a I mean that I'd been familiar with disappointment and summers being washed out before, but I feel that was really, that was my first real sense of something that we've become, that I've become so familiar with in England since then, <laughs> that taste of ashes in the mouth, which of course we experienced big time when we went out quite thrillingly to Iceland the, the, the other day. Um, and, you know, I think it's just by the, by the time you're 14, in, if you grew up in England, you disappointment has so become part of your of your of your it's become part of your dna in a way and you know it's funny it's just not the people in america it's a strange thing they don't have our capacity for disappointment but contradicting what i say in the book they do still have this great sort of uh, they believe in that that great promise still. So I, I would slightly qualify the claim I make in the book, whereby I, I show I, I say that my capacity for disappointment is a sign of how much I expect from the world. And actually, let me go back again to the Stalker book, because there we talk about the way that when they get to the room, you know, uh, your deepest wish will come true. And again, I think it's a very uh, English thing because I I discuss the way that maybe actually, if for me is my deepest wish actually pretty well synonymous with my deepest regret? <laughs> That's, that is inconceivable in America, that way of thinking, I think. Of course, it'd be like, no, look forwards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The answer's yes. Now, what's the question? <laughs> but that's why I like it, because here, because I'm so, like, not cynical by disposition, I find it so difficult here to be like, I have this thing I want to do. And people go, no, no. And then you go to America and you go, I have this thing I want to do. And they go, great, great. And then later on, they disappoint you in a uh, yes, different way. Yeah. I think there's. I think we have the balance approximately right. I think for both of us, <laughs> we, well, no, both of us have ended up creating lots of stupid, ridiculous, whatever things, and they still get done, and there's a level of cynicism, and then if it does actually work and it sells out or excites people, people go, do you know what, I came to this and I thought it would be really shit. I quite enjoyed it. You know, that's, and that, so that, there's, there's something... There's, uh, um, there's a really good line, and it's by, I think it's like Alice Walker or something. It's, expect nothing, live frugally on surprise. Uh, I really like it. God, that does. Frugally that, that on surprise. very uh, un-American. Uh, yeah. The book that I think is, or has possibly been uh, reissued, uh, I have it down here, which is uh, The Missing of the Somme. Oh, yeah. Now, on the day we're recording this, obviously you're not listening to it on this day, but this, this is the day where uh, 100 years since the Somme, the commemoration of that. And this 
book I find this my my dad one of his favourite books about oh. he's he's very interested in this because his you know obviously his father was in the First World War and and all of his uh, you know family um the way that you write it there's a right at the beginning you talk about looking at a picture of uh, your grandfather yeah and then you say well actually it's not my grandfather right. because it can be anyone's grandfather mm. that's that's the thing this is what um. What was it about? I mean, obviously, I know this. This sounds really banal. What was it about the song? But because it's a the way that you, there's so many books about war, which are and then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened, and this isn't. This is about you. It's about your family. It is about the that ex- experience of of that particular war, of that particular battle. So, why, having written about about jazz and photography, the the the, the song? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, first up, uh, I remember saying to my publisher about you know a couple of months ago uh you know in terms of the the marketing potential for this book the best the planets are going to be in alignment and if we don't do something with it now we're going to have to wait another hundred years for the (laughs) next for the next centenary so so there's that but to go to go right back i mean i was living in paris trying to write a book which was going to be a version of Scott Fitzgerald's Tender is the Night, having trouble writing that, then did something I'd been wanting to do for a while, to visit these cemeteries, which I'd vaguely heard of on the Western Front, and didn't know exactly where I was going. Then I came to this place, Tiepval, where it said there was a British memorial, and there I saw that that wonderful memorial designed by Sir Edwin Lutyens, on which was written in these huge letters, The Missing of the Somme. And, you know, the Somme was a word that I heard in our family before I heard it at school. And just the huge sort of mossy resonance of that word was so strong that as soon as I saw this, I got a real sense that, my God, the gravitational pull of this place has sort of drawn me, drawn me here. So I asked myself, you know, what was it? You know, what exactly was it that that drew me? But actually... It turns out to answer that question, you've got to ask other questions. And that is, you know, what did I bring with me? What was the baggage, historical, cultural, familial, all the rest of it? What, what that, that uh, you know, what, what, you know, what drew me to this? Uh, and so the book is uh, an attempt to, uh, you know, to, to explain that. And for somebody of, of my generation, you know, OK, so that the, my grand, my grandfather was at the Somme, allegedly, although there's it's difficult to say at the the point at which reliable family stuff gives way to or is d- dissolved into a sort of general collective uh, consciousness but you know for 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 me i mean the first poetry i ever remember reading at school was first world war poetry it was wilfred owen so it's just such a such a formative thing i think if you're if you're if you're if you're british or actually new zealand or maybe canadian as well there's that great that bit that I'd never seen before from a letter, uh, Philip Larkin letter, where what's it? He describes Wilfred Owen as uh, I can't remember, but it's, it's, it's kind of the equivalent of those. Uh, seems like a bit of a dick, yeah, very brave yeah. dick, but a bit of a dick. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's but Philip that's Larkin that. isn't one to talk about who's a dick. No, no, no. Oh. But he's quite a nice way. He just just goes having looked into this, and yeah. then you talk about. I mean, one of the most remarkable things is is the choosing of the unknown soldier. Oh yeah, which all is an the... incredible story about. Sorry, yeah, just... yeah. Well, there's all of these. You know, after the, the you know the calamity of the the First World War, then they, they you know there's all these procedures of remembrance that are that are put in place. Not just the unknown soldier, but the you know the cenotaph, all this kind of stuff. 
And yeah, the um, actually what's what's really striking though for me, uh, and it's one of the things that the book is about, is that there are all these things that we associate with procedures of remembrance, and we assume that uh, they were all put in place after the the First World War. But in you know, and so you think of those lines that we hear every Remembrance Day. You know, in the morning and the evening, at the going down of the sun, we will remember them. And then, uh, so yeah, you think, oh, right, okay, there it is. And then you realise, oh my God, you know, you look it up and you realise these lines were written by Lawrence Binion uh, and they were written actually not in 1918 or 1919, they were written in something like September 1914. So this poem for the fallen was written pretty much before they even had a chance to fall. So and you realise that right from the start, everyone is preoccupied with how the war is going to be remembered. So, to extrapolate from that, it seems in retrospect that, God, it seems like the whole war was fought in order to see how it would be remembered. You know, because one of the differences, really, for... How, how old are you, Robin? I'm 47. 47. So I'm uh, more than 10 years older than you. But all of my childhood was dominated by recreating the Second World War in play. And it's everywhere in sort of comics, films, everything. You know, Where Eagles Dare is the other film I might have summarised had I not summarised uh, Stalker. It's the but... one bit of German we all know, isn't it? <laughs> Achtung! Achtung! Himmel! That was exactly. every battle action library. Yeah, and so we, we played and recreated the Second World War. We never played or recreated the First World War. Not, I think, just because it was less dynamic and sort of, you know, less movement, but because it seemed so completely in the realm of memory. It was in, you know, because it was all around in the, fa in, the, in, the, in the form of statues, memorials, this kind of thing. It, was, it seemed like it was always part of the past. So I always have, think it's a good idea to have sort of faith in your ideas. So I had this brilliantly original idea about the First World War, so original that nobody had ever noticed it before, which was the thing about the First World War is that it took place in the past. I was the first person to notice that. <laughs> there was a book written in 1873 about how there would be a writer who would so... Bloody <laughs> hell! Told you. Yeah. The, um, no. Well, that's what I was going to ask about when you. Sorry, Jesse. No, no. But, um, you took a little bit of that. Uh, that um, e even by talking about the horror, as you say, the horror becomes a banal word, yeah. and you have to start adding adjectives to the horror. The horror so, is I mean, the horror. Yeah, it, be it becomes a horrible horror. It becomes an <laughs> awful horrible horror, and that even that. There's a, a danger in, in all forms of, I, I suppose, whether it's history, whether it's Norse, something hideous becomes glamorous by the fact it is written about. Oh, and you can, you know, that that was already happening in the, in the 1930s. Several commentators say, you know, there's, I think, is it uh, one of the Toynbees? He can remember saying to himself the word Passchendaele over and over in a kind of trance of kind of horrified reverence. And I think, you know, various other people say that in their anti-war campaigns of the of the 1930s, they were more than half in love with that which they were sort of, you know, which which they were, uh, you know, campaigning against. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I, you're, I'm really, really c conscious of that. And also it's really striking as well that, uh, you know, um, it's I'm really it's incredible that still you get sort of commentators talking about films or books or whatever, praising them because they're anti-war. 
you know, it seems to me actually it'd be much more remarkable now, given that we've got so much evidence of how awful war is, be more remarkable if somebody just came out with a straight down the line pro-war, you know, uh, work of art of some kind. I, Remake I think, the Green Berets with John Wayne again. <laughs> well, but I think that it, it wouldn't be really because so much of, well, but but so much of like the way that society is has become so so like that, you know, like the help for heroes everywhere. Yeah. And the fact that the Remembrance Sundays have shifted from never again to support our troops. Do you, yes, do you know what I mean? Yeah, so culturally, yeah. it's not... It, I think it wouldn't be the slightest bit challenging. It would just be frustrating. <laughs> like It would just be bleak that yeah. a creative person was also joining in with that, maybe. Or, or, or do you know what I mean? Or, or at the moment, especially, I mean, you know, this past week, all of this feeling that, you know, with Brexit... if. I've had a lot of harassment online from people saying uh, pretty much you're a traitor because World War Two veterans would have voted Brexit. And you're oh, like, yeah, yeah. no, they definitely wouldn't. Well, Statistically, they, they didn't. Uh, yeah, They I didn't. Mean, yeah. It was the generation under them. The, uh, the Brexit actually, thing yeah. is a mixture because we, there were some of the older people where um, um, Sheila Hancock, who uh, really trounced me on just a minute, so I don't know what I'm going to say. But she she made a speech about the fact that her first husband had flown in, in, in the Second World War and what it meant and what it was about and how she there's different I think there's so many different narratives that can be taken oh, exactly. from that no no but all I'm that, saying yeah. about what I'm saying about the um, I think the point I was trying to make was that it's all been hijacked for this kind of militaristic frightful <laughs> right wing populism at the moment so it, it wouldn't I, be remarkable. I never quite know what people, when you actually, because so many soldiers, some of the ones, they don't want to talk about it and they never talk about it. And they, you know, the, the not many, I suppose, now, even few who fought in the Second World War. So you never quite, the idea of that you are in your mind as you're there with shit going on all around you and you're remembering what you're fighting for <laughs> beyond the fact that you went to war and then you just go, now I'm here. And you're not actually going, do you know what? I'm imagining a utopian 2016 <laughs> where something that was created in the 50s that we joined in the 70s will then be left again. Yeah, That's what I'm yeah. fighting for due yeah. to my prescience. Or yeah. I was conscripted into this. I had no choice. It's awful. I'm a pacifist. There's nothing I can do. I've seen all my friends die. What the fuck is going on? How can I ever reconcile this sadness and disillusionment with going and living? Well, that's very uh, downbeat then. So I, instead, I'll just, oh, I've actually sorry. found that. Here we are. Uh, Philip uh, Larkin said, uh, Wilfred Owen, or W.O., seems rather a prick, really. Yet the poems stay good. A brave prick, of course. <laughs> uh, the, uh, we've run out of time pretty much I was oh, going to no. say by the way I, I noticed in an interview you did I'm not, I'm not sure how long ago it was you said uh, that one of the next books you were going to read was At the Existential Cafe by Sarah Bakewell oh yeah which I've now read it's bloody great isn't it it's fantastic yeah yeah and I really what I can't uh, yeah it's it's wonderful actually uh, I don't like the there's a trend in non-fiction now to write about complex subjects in a jaunty tone. I hate the jaunty tone so much. And what I like about that book is that it's accessible, of course, but it's never just that. It's it's it's, it's accessible and serious at the same time. The Heidegger story is my favourite one, in it? Could you please give me a, a small summary? Well, basically, she's dealing with... When she was a teenager, early 20s, she loved all the uh, the existentialists and, and people who would now be called absurdists as sure. well, you know, Camus, Sartre, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, and so she just writes about their life. Colin Wilson as well, there's a small bit about him, the, 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 the English existentialist. But there's this great story about Heidegger. It's quite near the end, isn't it, where she talks about a... Um, uh, there was a poet coming, a poet who had been in, I 
think it was Auschwitz. He was coming to the town where Heidegger lived, and Heidegger loved this poet, and he felt he went, went to every shop and said, the books must be in the front of all the shops in the windows, because when, when this poet arrives, I want him to know how celebrated he is and how loved he is. And when she says this story, and Heidegger, of course, a bit of a reputation, uh, <laughs> there's a great thing with uh, a, a Texan uh, philosophy professor uh, who starts off, Rick Roderick, and he goes, uh, now today we're going to talk uh, about Heidegger. Heidegger. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I started, Heidegger was a bit of a Nazi. Now, I don't like starting with that snotty remark, but I'm afraid he was. Um, so she says all this story about this beautiful thing he did. She says, the reason this is so memorable is in all the years that I've studied Heidegger, this is the only time I could find any record of him ever doing anything nice, ever. And it's a great well thing. That's yeah, brilliant. Yeah, um, great Jeff, thank oh, sorry. you so much for coming on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm really sorry yeah. that there was. We meant to talk about the books that inspired you. We should have talked more probably about John Berger. Uh, Ways of Telling is, I think it's it's not actually a, a, a published any more. But I mean, obviously, you can still pick up it's, copies. Very interesting. It's, uh, it's quite rightly out of print because though John Berger is a great, great man, and my love for him and his books is undiminished. That was my first book. It's a rather. It's such a sort of. I don't know, there's Berger who made all these great freedoms available and I subjected his work to this kind of rather timid sub-academic processing. So, yeah, uh, you really don't need to, to worry that that's no longer uh, available at a retail outlet near you. Now I've found out how awful it is, I'll lend you my copy, <laughs> listeners. Um, thank you very much. Uh, the, the new book is... So, so The Missing of the Somme is, is, uh, has been reprinted by Canongate and uh, White Sands is out already, isn't it? The... Uh, published today I think published today which is uh, the way we it's the first of first July when we're recording this and uh, there's many other things I'd love to talk to you about and uh, thank you very much Josie Long as well thanks it's been a pleasure to be so cluelessly Um, out of my depth uh, but it's been a pleasure (laughs) the um, and uh, yes so look up go to Canagate's website and you'll find out uh, where uh, most of Jeff's books are available from thanks very much that was uh, Robin and Josie's Josie and Robin's book shambles bye 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 Thank you very much for listening and don't forget there are plenty more episodes with many different people on them including Lisa Dwan, Chris Hadfield, Eddie Izzard, Stuart Lee, Sarah Pascoe, A.L. Kennedy all of those episodes and many more John Ronson, that's a very good one as well though he wasn't quite so sure it was So have a look at cosmicgenome.com slash shambles where you will find the reading list, the other episodes and most importantly for us, details of Patreon donation link. So thank you very much for everyone who has donated and made it possible for us to keep going with Book Shambles and they have included Nicola Blacklaws, Tommy D, KB, Dominic Cave, Fionola Thompson, Steve Bowring, Marnie Chesterton, John Joe Roberts, David Catley, Jodie Broad, Emrys Hopkins and Amber Peachy Moore. Thank you all and everyone else who has helped. Bye-bye.